You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. First, First Timothy chapter 4. We're continuing our series in this letter called Gospel Culture in God's Household. And in the Lord's providence on this Sunday morning when we've baptized four young adults, we also reached the section in this letter where Paul addresses Timothy as not only a fellow pastor, but as a young pastor. It's remarkable how often the Bible tells us that the Lord calls young men to lead his precious people. You think about the many good kings of Judah when they began to reign. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old. Uzziah was 16. Hezekiah was 25. And the greatest king that Israel ever knew, David, was only 30. When the Lord called the prophet Jeremiah to serve as his prophet, Jeremiah groans and complains and he says, ah, Lord God, I do not know how to speak for I am only a youth. Young men have always been called to lead God's people. But the typical pattern is that they would be mentored by older men because before they were entrusted with this great responsibility. You think about Joshua who had Moses, David who had Samuel and Nathan, Timothy who had Paul. The pattern in God's school of leadership has always involved older men raising up younger men to carry the torch after them. That's what we're going to see in our text today. As Paul guides Timothy, his young protege, and helps him to navigate the unique challenges that young pastors must face. And as a young pastor myself, I have drawn particular specific encouragement and challenge from this text. But as we listen to the Apostle Paul, I anticipate that all of us, but especially those who are young believers, will learn important lessons about how we can faithfully live out the Christian life to the glory of God. So let me begin by reading 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The title of this sermon is Lessons for the Young Christian. Lessons for the Young Christian. And those three lessons are as follows. First, lead by example. Second, use your gifts. And third, don't give up. Let's look at our first point, lead by example. 
Paul begins by reminding Timothy of the sacred responsibilities of the pastoral office in verse 11, when he writes, command and teach these things. This is military language. Timothy isn't called to make suggestions to God's people. Oh, I think it would be a good idea for you to do this. He's he's not called to lay before the flock some practical tips that they can either take or leave as they please. His role is to command. His role is to authoritatively direct the flock because that's what shepherds do. You can imagine a shepherd looking at a rotten patch of grass and suggesting to his sheep, I don't think it's a good idea to eat that, but go ahead and do it if you want. He would not be a very good shepherd. The shepherd must use his voice to direct and to command the sheep, not for his own selfish gain, but for the health and flourishing of the flock. Timothy is to command, but that doesn't mean he can tell his flock to do whatever he wants. Verse 11, notice it says, command these things. These things, that is the things that Paul has written in this spirit-inspired letter. In other words, Timothy is to command only what God has commanded in his word. Because Timothy's authority as a pastor isn't derived from within himself. It is delegated to him by God. And that's why a pastor can't tell you who to marry, where to live, or what to do with your work because the word of God doesn't tell you those things. A pastor's authority is is issued and uh, circumscribed by the authority of God's word. The only commands that pastors can issue are the commands that are found in scripture. Paul also says that he is to command and teach. Command and teach these things. So a pastor doesn't force obedience. He doesn't compel and direct the flock by shouting louder. No, he is, he is to teach. He is to teach obedience. He's not a drill sergeant who demands obedience through the force of his will. He's a shepherd. And so he leads by patient instruction. Now here's the problem. How could a young man like Timothy command and teach his church, which would have had many believers who were older than him. You can't command people who don't respect you. And Timothy lived in a time when respect only came to the experienced. It was your age that determined how much respect you deserved and how closely people listened to you. And that was a problem. Because in order for Timothy to do his job effectively as a pastor, to command and teach these things, the only way for him to do that is if the people respected him. That's why Paul says in verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy had a responsibility before God conveyed to him by the apostle Paul to let no one despise him for his youth. And that wasn't for the sake of his own self-esteem. It wasn't for the sake of his own ego, but for the sake of the pastoral office. He couldn't pastor his church if his people looked down on him. Now I'm gonna pause here for a personal remark. As a young pastor myself, this could have been my experience, but it has not. Ever since I stepped into this role as the senior pastor of Sovereign Grace Church four years ago, and up until the present day, this church has been exemplary in supporting me, respecting me, following me. 
I can't tell you the number of times when people in our church have come up to me to express their, their respect and their gratitude that God has called me to be your pastor. Just in our pre-service prayer meeting, people were praying exactly that. Our church has been exemplary in this area, and that has continued since we've moved into this building, and I've had the privilege of meeting many more mature, experienced saints than me. Uh, you have continued to, to respect and to follow my leadership. You could have looked down on me for my youth, but you didn't. And that is a testament to your humility, and that is a testament to your godliness. It is a testament to how God is at work in your lives to make you willing to follow a young man like me. And so, as I've often said, serving this church is a wonderful privilege and an absolute joy. And it is because you have made it so. Thank you for respecting and following me as your pastor. I recognize, however, that some of you may not feel respected in your respective contexts. Perhaps you're looked down on by your parents or your in-laws or by your boss or by your spouse. What, what can you do in that situation? When you are a junior employee or whether you are a grown adult who continues to uh, experience parents relating to you like a child, what can you do to earn respect? Well, Paul tells us in verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And so respect must be earned. We do not receive it by default, but we do not earn it by domineering those around us. We do not earn it by demanding that those around us give it to us. We do not earn it by proving that you are superior to those around you in skill or in knowledge. No, respect is earned by living an exemplary life. Respect is earned when you excel in these Christian virtues of speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Now these virtues, they're not randomly chosen. They're not kind of a grab bag of fruits of the spirit. Paul has wisely chosen these virtues because they are precisely the areas of life that young people struggle in the most. He chose speech because we're not careful with our words. He chose conduct, because we can be rash and we can be impulsive and foolish. He chose love, because we can be naturally selfish. He chose faith, because we tend to trust in ourselves. He chose purity, because we are tempted by our lusts. Paul's saying that excelling in these virtues is the path to earning respect as a young person. And that means that it is possible for you to excel in these areas. Paul would not call Timothy to set an example in these areas if it were beyond his reach, if it were impossible for him to meet. You can set an example for other believers in these areas, including believers who are much older and wiser than you are. And if you do, then when those who are around you are tempted to look down on you because of your youth and inexperience, they would respect you instead when they see that you are quick to listen and slow to speak, when they see that you are self-controlled in your conduct, when they see that you are full of love 
for God and for neighbor, when they see that your, your trust, your faith is not in yourself and in your own judgment, but in God and in his word, when, when they see that you take your sanctification so seriously that you are willing to cut off the temptations and sins that lead you to an impure heart. Oh, when, you, when they see your life excelling in these areas, they will respect you. Philip Ryken writes, the way to stop people from looking down on you is to make sure they look up to you. And the way to do that is to lead by example. My young Christian friends, you can be leaders. You can be leaders in the home, in your school, in your workplace, and in your church. And the best way for that to happen is through the strength and the integrity of your personal example. You can lead by example. Second, use your gifts. Paul says something very important about the nature of Christian worship in verse 13. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This verse describes what is meant to be, what was and what is meant to be a central part of what the church is to do when the believers are gathered for worship. They are to read the Bible together. We are by nature a reading community. And Timothy, as the pastor of this church, was to devote himself to the public reading of scripture so that the church would regularly have this shared experience of reading the scriptures together. And this has been the pattern for God's people ever since the Lord led Israel out of Egypt in the great exodus. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses writes, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. God's people have always read God's word together. And if you notice what it said in, in those verses, it, it talks about all of God's people, young and old, men and women. Even the, even the little ones were gathered together as the law was read by the leaders of Israel. And so in this time when we don't have Sunday school because of COVID restrictions and our children are gathered together, this is, this is not out of the ordinary. In many ways, it is biblical for the little children to hear the word of God read together with their families. Now that's not to say that there's no place for nursery or Sunday school, but it does mean that having all of us together, entire families, is pleasing in the sight of God. Now Paul adds that Timothy is not only to read, but to devote himself to exhortation and to teaching. As he reads, he is to explain and he is to apply. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like what we're doing right now. This is what we do every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday in what we call the sermon. The pastor is to read, explain, and apply. It's not enough to just read the text because we all know that there are parts in scripture that are hard to understand. And it is even harder to apply the word of God to our lives when we're reading in isolation. And so we are to read together and, and those who are trained to handle the word of God well are to explain and to apply for the good of the church. And this is why we are committed to what we call expository preaching. 
It's because reading, teaching, and exhortation are all meant to be tied to the same text of Scripture. We don't do this, we don't commit ourselves to expository preaching because it's part of our brand. We do this because it's what the Bible tells us to do when we gather together. The Bible is not meant to be a mere footnote to the sermon or to our services. It's not meant to be a springboard so that we can talk about the church's vision statement and programs. The text of scripture is meant to be central to our corporate worship together. Studying this book, encountering God in this book, considering how how our lives are meant to be shaped by this book is meant to take up the main portion of our time together. We need to hear God's word And the only way to hear it is to pay close attention to it. Now, Paul needed Timothy to hear this because all around him, as we've already seen in 1 Timothy, there were senior members in the church who were wandering off into vain discussions and spiritual speculation. They were looking for something new to teach, something novel to proclaim, to be on the cutting edge of of theological academia, And they were wandering from the word. But Paul steers Timothy, young Timothy, back to his primary task and says, read the word, teach the word, apply the word, and don't get distracted. Paul reminds Timothy that he is to do this because it was his spiritual gift. He says that in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now there's some debate about the significance of the laying on of hands. What we know likely is that the laying on of hands happened at Timothy's ordination when he was commissioned by the council of elders to to serve as the pastor in this church in the city of Ephesus. But we don't know what the laying on of hands communicated. Did, Did the laying on of hands confer the gift? Or did the laying on of hands confirm the gift? Now, we don't know for sure, but it's really beside the point. We don't have time to get into it this morning. But the point is that Paul isn't concerned about how he received the gift. He's concerned about whether he's using the gift. He's concerned about whether he's faithfully growing in this gift and applying this gift to the service of the church because if he doesn't use it, he'll lose it. We know that's true when it comes to other gifts. If you're gifted musically, but you don't use that gift, you don't practice, you won't be able to perform. Or if you're gifted athletically, but you don't train and you don't work together with your team, you're not gonna be able to compete. The same is true of spiritual gifts. They need to be used if they are to remain effective. And Paul references this in his second letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1 verse 6, when he writes to Timothy, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Our gifts can be fanned into flame as we learn how to use them more effectively and as the Spirit empowers us to to use our gifts or they can flicker away and burnout because of laziness and because of neglect. We must use our gifts or risk losing them. My young Christian friends, like Timothy, you have spiritual gifts. And I know that not because I know you, but because I know the spirit who lives in you. The word of God tells me 
that if your faith is in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And it is the Spirit who gives gifts. It doesn't come primarily from your biology or from your education, but from the Holy Spirit himself. He, he can use your education and your upbringing and your training, but he doesn't depend on it. Use your gifts. The Spirit has given you gifts freely and generously. We won't all have the same gifts. We won't all have public gifts where you're up front leading or doing something where everybody's eyes are on you. But all of us have gifts that the Spirit has given to us for the common good. The Bible speaks of the gift of prophecy, the gift of healing, the gift of tongues, but also speaks of the gift of service, the gift of hospitality, the gift of leadership, the gift of administration, the gift of wisdom, and even the gift of faith. It talks about the gift of mercy. Whatever your gifts may be, you must not neglect them like Timothy was tempted to do. You must use your gifts. You must sharpen your gifts. You must strengthen your gifts. You must pray that the Spirit would fan your gift into flame, that the power of the Spirit would cause your gifts to burn hot for the glory of God and for the good of others. Third and final lesson, don't give up. We are to lead by example, we are to use our gifts, and we are to not give up. And notice how many times Paul exhorts Timothy in these verses to just keep going, keep going, and don't give up. Verse 15, he says to Timothy, practice these things, practice them, like an athlete would practice for a competition or a musician would practice for a concert. Practice these things. And that brings to mind the verse that we saw a couple weeks ago. Train yourself for godliness. He also says in verse 15, immerse yourself in them. What a beautiful picture we had of immersion early on in this service through baptism. You are to immerse yourself in these truths. You are to be surrounded by them, to not lose sight of them, to live by them. Verse 16, he says, persist in this. Don't give up. Don't get distracted. Just keep going. A Timothy is to practice his godliness. He is to immerse himself in the pursuit of living an exemplary life. He is to persist in using his gifts and not get distracted. You know, my kids have a nickname for me. It's actually one that I've given to them and that they've appropriated for their own use. They call me a same things kind of guy. A same things kind of guy. And one of the big reasons why they say that is because every morning, I eat the exact same thing. I eat raisin bran mixed with harvest crunch granola. And that, by the way, is due to my addiction to Costco. These products are often on sale at that venerable institution. And over the years, as I've bought them on sale, my diet has been shaped by brand loyalty. And I, I, I eat this for breakfast every single day. Doesn't matter what else is on the table. Bacon and eggs, waffles with whipped cream, Eggo waffles with maple syrup. I will eat the same thing every day. I'm the same things kind of guy. And that applies to other areas of my life as well. I, I don't need new things. I don't need novelty in my life. And that might sound boring, but I, I recognize that there is grace in this kind of lifestyle. 
This is not to say that you can't eat different things, okay? That's not what my point is. But, but what I want to guard my heart against is being so obsessed with the new and the novel that I'm not happy unless I, there's something new happening in my life. And the reason why that is so dangerous is because the Christian life is not like that at all. The Christian life is what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. You know, we're not called to be trailblazers who are going where no man has gone before. We're called to be pilgrims traveling on the well-worn path of the cross. Christian growth doesn't happen by innovation or secret knowledge. It happens in the same way that it has always happened throughout the centuries, through the ordinary means of grace, the word of God, prayer, the sacraments, and fellowship in the church. Paul adds this final exhortation in verse 16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. This verse, I love this verse, and I would love to have it posted on my wall one day. This summarizes everything that Paul has said in verses 11 to 15. Watch yourself and watch the teaching. Watch your life and watch your doctrine. The the imagery here is is of a, a fortified city at risk of being assaulted and besieged. And there are watchmen on the walls, pacing in the night, keeping a close watch for any signs of enemy that would threaten the safety of the city. And in the same way, we are to keep a close watch for the enemies of our souls that would threaten the godliness of our lives or the soundness of our doctrine. That enemy could be the world, the pull of the world to tempt us to conform to its secular, ungodly ways. That enemy could be the devil as he whispers lies to us and as he tempts us to abandon God's commands. It could be our own sinful nature. You know, John Owen, he writes about how A city can be so strong, but if it has traitors in the midst, it will fall. And my friends, we all have traitors in our hearts. A sinful nature that is ready to turn us over to the passions of the flesh and to disobedience to God. We have enemies and we need to watch out for them to keep a close watch on ourselves and on the teaching. And so when you are tempted with evil thoughts in your mind about someone else, or when you find your heart being filled with lust, or when you tell a lie during a passing conversation, or when you notice that your appetite for the spiritual truths of God's word is waning and dwindling, don't ignore it. Don't pretend that those thoughts and those temptations don't exist. That would be like watching the walls, seeing an enemy approaching and turning a blind eye and walking the other way. If you see it coming, you need to sound the alarm. You need to confront the enemy. You need to bring it to the Lord and bring it to God's people in prayer and confession and put it to death. The same is true when it comes to teaching. We are to keep a close watch on our lives and on the teaching. When you're hearing preaching that seems off, 
or when you read the latest popular Christian book and you have questions about whether it really aligns with God's truth, don't just say, well, this writer is popular and successful, or that, that pastor has a, has a wide platform, so what he must be saying or what this writer must be saying must be true. No, you must investigate. You must study the word. You must make sure that what the writer or the speaker says aligns with what God has said in his eternal word. And in order to do that, you need to know your Bible. You need to be just as devoted to the private reading of scripture as your church should be devoted to the public reading of scripture. Because you can't be discerning if you don't know the truth. You can't be watchful if you don't know what to watch for. The best way to watch your doctrine is to immerse yourself within it and to keep digging deeper into God's word. Paul ends with this marvelous promise where he says, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul is saying, don't don't give up. Persist in this. Don't get distracted. If you keep walking in this long obedience in the same direction, keeping a close life, close watch on your life and on your doctrine, you will be saved. You will be saved through faith in Christ. And not only that, but you will lead others to be saved as well. Now let's not misunderstand. Verse 16 isn't saying that we save ourselves. Only Jesus saves us through his life, death, and resurrection. But if we are to receive that salvation personally, if you are to be saved, if I am to be saved, we must persevere in faith. We must persevere to the end. And the only way to persevere to the end is to watch our lives in our doctrine. To not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. To not be led astray by false teaching. To persist in the pursuit of godliness and to persist in the preservation and celebration of sound doctrine. If you do, you will save both yourself and others. Now to my non-Christian friends, if you're here, if you're listening on the live stream or if you're here together with us in person, God offers this free gift of salvation to you as a gift to anyone who would believe. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can be reconciled to God in a loving relationship as his son or as his daughter. Not because you're good enough, not because you've obeyed this law well enough, but because Jesus died on the cross on your behalf. He took your place. He bore God's wrath that you deserved and and took it upon himself. And now he offers to you the salvation that he has purchased for you as a gift. We need to persevere to the end. We need to finish strong. But in order to finish strong, we need to start. And you haven't started until you've begun to walk with Christ. You don't need to feel your way forward and hopefully find your way to truth. You don't need to draw your own spiritual map to enlightenment or salvation. You can travel on the well-worn path of the cross along with fellow believers all around you. And we will help each other to get to the end safely. And to my young Christian friends, I hope you're encouraged by God's word today. I hope you have new faith to believe that you can be exemplary in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, and purity. 
That's the promise of God's word. That's the power of the spirit within you. You can change and help others to change by your own example. But in order to do that, listen, in order to do that, we need older saints to guide us along the way. I mean, Timothy needed Paul to remind him of these things when he was being tempted to go astray. We we need our own Pauls. Timothy had Paul in his life to remind him to keep going, to not be distracted and to watch his life and his doctrine and we need that as well. You look around and you see that we are a young church. But in God's gracious providence, he has blessed our church with older, wiser saints, mature believers, Christians who have traveled on this well-worn path of the cross a little longer and faced temptations that are a little stronger and they're faithful. Seek out these older saints. Find them and receive the wisdom of the generation that came before us that we might all persevere in faith until the very end. Let's pray. Father, we pray not for our sake, but for your sake, that our church would be filled with young people who live exemplary lives. Young believers who are characterized by the godliness of their speech, by the faithfulness of their conduct, by the depth of their love, by the steadiness of their faith, by the purity of their hearts. that through our church, another generation of faithful believers would carry on the torch for the sake of the gospel. And so we pray that you would do this. Do this in those who are baptized this morning. Do this in all of our lives that you might save us and save others through our testimony. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.